Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. If you haven't opened your Bibles, I'll just pause here just a little bit, give you time. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And as I read it, I want you to have your antenna up to think about, okay, so who's he writing to? So just think about who's he writing to? Think about the audience. And John says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the fathers. Because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So at first glance, you look at that and you, you come up with three audiences. You've got the children and then you've got the, the fathers and then you have the, the young men. Um, and so it looks looks plain enough, three audiences. But there's a, a little wrinkle in here the the word for translated little children in verse 12 and the word translated children in verse 13 are different Greek words. So for us, little children and children, that that kind of looks the same in Greek. They're they're different. Um, some translations show that the ESV and the NASB show that other translations say these words mean the same in meaning. And so the King James, New King James, and the NIV just translates them children. So the the text behind there doesn't really come out, but it's it's close enough. And perhaps I tend to think they are synonyms. They both are referring to. So there is a little bit of a difference between a, a technia and a paideia. Uh, technia, which is your first term, little children, just describes a, a dependent child where a, a paideia would be more of a, a child of discipline age, one who's actively over, uh, has oversight over the child. But basically, they're, they're the same. Um, could be some variation, but there's also a nuance of verbs. If, if you notice the first three verbs, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you three times. And then three times he says, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. Or some translations have it, I have written to you, I have written to you, I have written to you. Perhaps best is I wrote to you, I wrote to you, I wrote to you. So here he's saying, I am writing to you and I wrote to you. And I read stuff this week about the different views about what he's referring to in the first three. What's he referring to in the last one is I am writing to you. Is that like what he from this point forward? And then I wrote to you. Is that from that point back? Or I am writing this this letter. Is that what it means? I wrote to you means another epistle or or do they all refer to the same thing? And I don't know. I don't think it really matters, though, because at the end, I don't think it has any difference on our application Without dispute, here it is, that John is fully aware of his audience. There are some who are younger. There are some who are middle-aged. There are some who are older. And uh, there's really everyone in between. And for each of these audiences, look, he gives a reason for writing. He says to little children, he writes, because your sins are forgiven. And for the children, down later in verse 13, he writes, because you know the Father. For the fathers, he writes both in 13 and 14, because you know him who is from the beginning. And for the young men, he says, you've overcome the evil one. Or in verse 14, he adds, you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. These are, notice, these are words of affirmation. These are encouraging words. Uh, these are, 
are, are, are words that, that are helping his readers. And you say the question right here is, is why did John give these confirming words? I mean, it is such a strange section in the gospel, in the epistle here about, about this section. And some, it's poetic. It's kind of different than everything else that he writes. And you guys say, well, why, why is he doing that here? And, uh, I, I think that the reason why is because of what we looked at last week and because of what we looked at, we will look at next week. It's, it's that he's saying some really difficult things in First John. So, like, look last week, our text, verse 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, in him, it, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, the sensitive soul might easily be distressed and disturbed by these words as, as, as he thinks or she thinks about her relationships and people that maybe have harmed, that maybe have hurt, that maybe there's some antagonism there and, and maybe there's a built up animosity and, and maybe they are hated and, and they can return that back in hatred so easily. And the sensitive soul might might look at wounded relationships and just say, boy, am I really in the light or not? Because, you know, what, I kind of hate this person. And and is that disqualifying me? Am I, am I not a Christian because I hate this person? It's pretty clear. Whoever hates his brother. Just think, is there someone you hate? Well, if you do, it says you're in the darkness. Right. Because the light loves, as we looked at last week, and darkness hates or despises. But if you hate your brother, you're in the darkness, you walk in the darkness and he does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. I think those are are difficult words, especially for the sensitive soul. And so what he does now is he just encourages them. He says, yes, I've said some hard things, but but be assured that you are. Are not to doubt your salvation with these words. John's seeking to encourage. Remember, the whole purpose of the book is to give assurance of salvation. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And John knows who is reading his books, his book. He knows they haven't departed from the faith. And in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might be shown that they all are not of us and says see they went out but you're in and i know you all and and i know that that you're a a child a a young man or a father i'm trying to encourage you john says "I, i know that your sins are forgiven i know that you know him who is from the beginning I know that you know the Father. I know that you are strong. I know the Word of God abides in you. I know that you have overcome the evil one. This is right. And they're helpful affirmations. And I think they're helpful affirmations. What's coming next? What's coming next next week is, is pretty strong too. Look at verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we will look long and hard next week at at what it means to love the world and, and really be challenged by whether we love the world or not. So if you don't want to be challenged, just don't come next week because it's going to come. It's going to come hard. 
because that statement there in verse 15 is so strong. And, and we think about, right, if anyone loves the world, there's a lot of the world to love. But it says we cannot love the world. And it's interesting how, how John gives the affirmation. He doesn't, like, he doesn't lessen the message. He doesn't say, well, you know, if, if you mostly don't like the world. He, no, he, he puts it out it's as big and bold as it is there. And it's meant to convict our hearts and strive us toward godliness. And then in the same time, he gives us assurance. He helps us not by lessening the truth, but by affirming their faith. And I just say this, to the extent that these things are true in your souls, you'll find encouragement in these words today. But the extent that you're really hating other people and to the extent that you really love the world, these words will fall shallow on you. But if they're, if they're true, they will resonate within your heart. And, and John was writing in general. It's almost as if, though, we can think today that I know you. I know most all of you here. And I could say these same things. And it's a shepherd of your souls. We could even say it this way. Verse 12. I'm preaching to you little children. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm preaching to you fathers. Because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm preaching to you young men. Because you've overcome the evil one. I'm preaching to you children. Because you know the father. And I'm preaching to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm preaching to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Uh, That is a message that I can wholeheartedly endorse. As I as I see you all respond to life and see you respond to the the word of God and the difficulties and questions. uh, This is very true. I'm not writing this to put great doubts in your minds. I'm writing this to assure you. Know that these things are true. Well, by outline this morning, I just want to ask two questions, mostly by way of application, just to just to catch these themes rather than being pedantically right, working through each of these. We'll, we'll get at that. But my question is this. Who are you? Who are you? Right, you might say your name. I'm Steve Brandon. I'm not no, not not asking for that. I'm asking you whether you're a child, a father or a young man. Now, when I ask that question, I'm not asking you about your age. Anyone here could instantly say I'm a I'm a child or I'm a young man, except maybe some in the adolescent years might have a little difficulty. And then, right, your fathers. And well, you can just say, well, do I have a child yet? I'm not a I'm not a father. or I, I am. So. But that's not what I'm, I'm asking you. I'm asking you about spiritual maturity. Spiritually, are you a. A child or are you a young man or are you a father? Because that's what John is talking about. He's talking about spiritual maturity here. And I say that because look at chapter two, verse one. He's saying, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing to all of us. I mean, it's not like we got to chapter two, verse one, a few weeks ago. And I said, OK, this is just to the little children. Right? This is just to the immature. No, what, what what John is doing is he's saying, I'm writing to you, dear ones, loved ones, little children. We all are children. And I, I'm writing to you in this way. And and little children has a has a meaning of the young in the faith. But it also has a broader meaning to all of us, our, our children they're addressed to all of us in chapter two, verse 18. Look, again, he's going to say, 
Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Now, again, it's not as if he's writing just to teenagers saying you need to be aware of the times like young men. You don't need to worry about this or old men. You don't need to worry about this. Children catch this. No, it's all of us need to know this. Because it's helpful for all of us. So he addresses all of us as children. And I think in some regard, he he considered himself a father of these people. The term children is an expression of, of compassion and grace. He calls them brothers in chapter 3, verse 13. And that's, it's everybody, so he calls everybody children. He calls everybody brothers. By the way, the word little children in chapter 2, verse 1 is technia. And the word for children in chapter 2, verse 18 is paideia. Same words. Kind of comes right across. Different word, different. But he's, he's calling everybody a, a child under the care of parents and a child under the role of discipline. He, he addresses... His readers using children, little children, five other times in this letter. So that's where it's difficult. That's why I think this is poetic. It's not just one group of people. It's not like you can say, hey, I am a I am a child because all of us are. In fact, that's his affirmation. Chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the father's given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And then he says, beloved, we are God's children Now, listen, all of us who believe are God's children. We are our children. We're children of God because we've been born of God. That's what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about. He said, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born again, being born from above, that is God regenerating us and changing us so that we are his child. See, there are only two types of children in the world. There are children of God and the children of the devil. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, not a child of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, not a child of God. This means on the planet, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. We're all children You just look at your life. Are you loving the brothers? Are you practicing righteousness? That's what John says throughout this whole gospel, throughout this whole letter, if you will. But returning my question, who are you? Are you a child, a young man, or a father? Not talking about age. He's not not even talking about your sex, okay? So here it's not the word for children, it's just a a, a plural, male plural form is, is what it is. Um, he's neuter, but it, but it just means all of us. It means men, women, children. But he's just using the male. As we often do. We talk about someone. We use he. As the Bible often does uses the word he. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's it's applying. Are you a, a little girl? Are you a, a young woman? Are you a an older woman? Talking about in the faith. So maybe really a, a better question rather than who are you? Maybe it's how mature are you? Are you weak in the faith? Are you young in the faith? Are you old in the faith? Would you consider yourself a child? Or a young adult? Or an older seasoned saint? Maybe that's the best way to, to put it. Now, in some regards, it has to do with time, right? Because doesn't a child grow into a young man? Or a young woman? And then they grow into old age? Isn't that, I mean, in time? Time does that? No, not every time is that the case. I know plenty of young men who are really children. They um, haven't taken responsibility of what it means to be a young man. They haven't gone to school. They haven't got their training. They haven't got their job. They're just staying at home and waiting it out. 
Seen kids like that. They're not preparing to have a home and a family like young men need to be preparing. They stay at home, continue their childish ways, play video games. I've seen plenty of fathers who are children too. Oh, yes, biologically they're fathers, but <laughs> maturity-wise, they're children. Really are. So time doesn't always do this. Um, but mostly a child grows into a young man and child grows into a father. But spiritually, there is a parallel, right? We come into the kingdom as children, as, as Jesus said. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. We enter as children. We enter with with little. We enter as a child does, just begging and, and pleading in open arms and just coming and loving Jesus. But as we continue in our faith, we continue in our walk, we become stronger and, and then become mature. And, and the longer we walk with God, the more mature we get. The trials of life come upon us and the trials of life do nothing but, but encourage us and strengthen our faith. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet the trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces endurance and let... Endurance have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? So you're, you're believing, but the trials come and they just strengthen you into maturity. And, and the longer you live, the more trials God's going to bring in your life. And the trials that come are designed of God so as to help us grow. We grow out of a childlike weakness. We become strong. Paul warned us in Ephesians 4.14. We are no longer to be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, he continues, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is ahead, even to Christ. And as we walk our days as believers, we walk from immaturity and we just continue a level of greater and greater maturity. How many of you as young believers were engaged in things or did things that now you would look back and say, I would never do that today? It's a, it's a picture of maturity. It's a, it's a picture of you've, you've put aside those childish ways. You, you've grown in your understanding of God. You've grown in your passion, your heart for God and walking in righteousness. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do those ways. Now, again, like physical growing, this doesn't always happen. There are, are those who come to Christ but remain in a state of immaturity for years and years and years. Oh, yes, they know Christ and the forgiveness he offers, but that's that's about all. And I just say it's a state to be mourned when that takes place with a, a child of God, like the child that never grows up, but stays at home. It's like grow up. Paul lamented the immaturity of those at Corinth. First Corinthians three, one through three, he said, but I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still the flesh. He lamented the fact that here they should have grown. They should have been mature, but they weren't. They were fleshly. And so he had to address them as infants. He said, it's a, it's a shame. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews wrote the same, did a similar chunk of, of his. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, he lamented that his his readers, his his have not progressed in the faith. He said about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Talk about Melchizedek since you've become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you of the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid foods for the mature 
For those are the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. And he just laments that here they've been Christians for a long time and they should have grown, but they're not. And so he's got to give them milk and not solid food. And I just parenthetically say how sad it is that many churches just continue to dole out the milk. But if people raise up, then maybe churches would have to give out the meat. But many people today in churches are just satisfied with the milk of the word. They're not satisfied with the meat. And pastors feel like that's all they can give. And I say, let's raise it up. Let's be mature. So my question is, how mature are you? Now, I know it's difficult to say, no, I'm a child. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young man. I'm a, an adult. I mean, it's, it's kind of, kind of hard, you know, to say, I know that when, when David was younger, he made the proclamation. He says, I'm going to be a man. And he gave some stipulations about what it's going to be that he's a man. Maybe I won't share those with you, but he, He's held true to some of those, and he's been pretty good about, I'm going to be a man. And that was like two years ago, okay? But he wants to be that way, and, but when do you cross that line? Is there some magical age when you cross that line? So I, I'm not, it's difficult to quantify, and I don't think John could have identified everybody. Okay, oh, you're a child, oh, you're a young adult, oh, you're a, you're a father. But, but there is a spectrum that is really clear. There's, there's the new in faith, and there's the mature in faith. And I say, what, where are you on that scale? What, what's your graph over time look like? Does it, is it flat? That's bad news. That's what Paul and the writer of Hebrews lamented. Is it, is it, is it going up? Is it going up and down? Generally, here's, here's the path of a, of a, a believer in Christ. Is it, is it starts low and, and it, it's a jagged, it's a jagged walk with some up and downs. But in general, you look at the big perspective, it's gone up. You know, it's like the stock market over many, many years. There are dips, right? There are recessions. There are depressions. But if you look over the big grand hall over 60, 70, 80, it's, it's all up. And so it is with a believer in Christ. It should be up. And, and that's, what, that's what John is trying to say. It's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life. It is the maturing. And, and certainly there are various degrees of maturity. How you understand maturity, measured maturity, I have no idea. All right? Except... He's got reasons why he's writing to these people. That gives us reason to look at, say, okay, how am I maturing? That's really my second out question by outline this morning is, is, is not only who are you, but are you maturing? Are you, are you on the up? And I say, well, where are you? And, and I say, let's just look at the reasons why John is writing, because he's writing to them with this reason, because that kind of characterizes the message that they need to hear. And I say, are you, are you maturing? Are the things of earth growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Is Christ your, your becoming more and more your vision, your best thought by day or by night? Is Jesus the one you, you seek? Do, do you desire more love to the O Christ? Are you, are you desiring greater and greater fullness of him? It's, it's a question really need to, to answer yourself. Because all you are in different spots. But it's a good question to Answer. So let's look back. Let's just look what's characteristic of children. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The message children need to hear is your sins are forgiven. And really, like I talk, that's the message really all of us need to hear. It's like the lowest common denominator. Jesus said, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all generations beginning from Jerusalem. Forgiveness of sins proclaimed. That is like the first message. It's the foundation of the gospel. 
And of course, Peter preached that shortly after the day of Pentecost. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be wiped away. Indeed, it's the first message of the gospel. Now, you, you believe in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Believe in Jesus and all your sins are wiped away. They'll be forgiven. And believing is an evidence that indeed you are a child of God. That is the first step to know your sins are forgiven. Are you there in your maturity? Do you know your sins are forgiven? If you don't, then just right there is borderline of entering the kingdom of God. If, you're, if you don't know your sins are forgiven, maybe they're not. And if you know they're forgiven, I say, why do you know? And I hope you answer like Paul did, like that I just read for you, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us that that event in history interprets that event in history that His death upon the cross was for my sins. And I I trust that. And I understand propitiation. I understand how He redeemed me. And and certainly your understanding of the cross should go up and up. But are you sure that your sins are forgiven? Not by what you feel or not by what you say. You, You can say it all you want, but saying doesn't make it real. I'm just the reality, objective, historical, factual reality on God's word. Are you trusting God for the forgiveness of your sins? That's a child maturity. If you're kind of borderline right there. What about else? What else do you say about children? Let's pick up this other child statement at the end of verse 13. I write to you children because you know the father. Now, again, knowing God is a step in maturity. It is one of the first things you you need to be you, you need to know God. That's that's who we are. We are knowers of God as believers in Christ. Several times in this epistle, um, John equates knowing God with being a believer. Look, look at first John two, verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. We know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments, a liar and the truth is not in him. So there it is knowing God. It's the same with believing God. By this we know that we believe in Him. By this we know that we've come to believe Him or know Him. Whoever says, I believe in Him, but doesn't give you His commandments a liar. Belief and knowledge, those both are interchangeable. Or chapter 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever has been born, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. An example of an outward, a fruit of knowing God is that you love. Anyone, verse 8, who does not love does not know God because God is love. You know God, then you'll know his love and you will love other people. Knowing God is about the same as believing. It is like the lowest rudimentary, mature level. I know God. And you do. Don't, you know, you talk to me with unbelievers and you say, I know God. What are you talking about? It's strange, okay? But but knowing God is, we're talking about having a relationship with Him. Um, A lot of pastors talk about having a personal relationship with God. That is true. That's what it's talking about here. That's what it means to to know God. It's not talking about knowing about God. There are lots of people that know about God. But we're talking about knowing God in in relationship. it's it's communing with him in prayer. It's it's talking with God. It's it's following God. It's following not a book, but following the living God who is alive and well. It's it's experiential. This knowing God is very experience oriented. Like, yes, I know God. I, I know his ways and I, I know him. That's one of the most basic realities of 
of maturity is just saying, yeah, my sins are forgiven and I know God. So let's, let's, let's ratchet up a little bit. Let's go to the young men. And we see the progression of growth. In, in verse 13, John says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Now, in verse 14, he says the same thing, but he, he expands it. In verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Now, one of the characteristics of, of young men is their strength. I remember those days when I was strong, <laughs> but those are those are distant days. Um, in fact, uh, just Wednesday night, we got here for, for youth group and there was a neighborhood kids playing outside and I had been at the basketball hoop for some time and I was looking and and the, the basketball hoop has it's been lowered. Okay, there's some problem with it. They they lowered it because it's more stable or something. And I'm maybe eight feet tall, eight and a half feet tall. And so I said, you guys think I can dunk? And I I, I don't know what they, they said, but I thought mm, that's kind of high. And I, I can't dunk. On the, I should be able to dunk at that. I remember being able to, you know, do one of these things and dunk when I was young. But I my legs are not what my legs used to be when I was when I was young. And then Ethan, I remember you came along and you said, whoa, you just slammed that thing down. Like, OK, I'm just not there. I'm I'm in the decline physically reaching 50 soon in the, in two years or so. One of the things that my father often tells me. He says, Steve, I'm not as strong as I used to be. I'm not as strong as I used to be. He, I, I remember particularly when he went from 60 to 70. Um, at 60, he was still pretty strong. But by the time he got to 70, he, he was like, I just can't do as much as I used to do when I was 60. And there's a big difference. There's a drop off there. Well, now he's 80. And uh, there's even been a bigger drop off. And he says, I can't. I'm just not strong. In fact, he was helping my brother-in-law like my, my dad does in terms of just being a a servant and and helping um, him build a, a pole barn in the back of his his property and uh, they made these trusses and he he said I can't I, I gotta he gets his his grandchildren to come to pick up the trusses he says he can help build and can I hammer a few nails and can I put things together and do some sawing but he can't lift anymore at eighty he just is weak and so that's what I have to look forward to and that's what some of you young bucks have to look forward to Brian and Tim and. Darren to some degree. Right? We're, <laughs> we're, we're just there. I mean, you say, I, I remember, I remember Darren, we saw, we got a picture of you. I think, I think, uh, Tim, you had a picture of, of Darren floating around with his shirt off in college. 50 pounds bigger, all muscle, right? Defensive end for Wheaton College, and you're a shadow of what you used to be. <laughs> and I am too. And we wait long enough and all of you can be a sermon illustration, right? Well, if you want that picture, do you still have it, Tim, someplace? You know, did you like take it and hide it away someplace? I don't know. But listen, we're, but young men are strong. They can be strong without even trying. And if they try, you know how much stronger they get? You're seeing a young man lift weights, run, you're like, wow, they, they get pretty strong. Young men are, are strong and they can, they can work at it. Now, spiritually, every, everything is the same. There, there's something about being a Christian and early on being a Christian, having a zeal, eating a lot, and, and, and you get to be strong. 
And in fact, it's the word of God that strengthens. Look, look at what he says again in verse 14. He says, young men. He says, I write to you because you are strong. And here it is. The word of God abides in you. You want to know how to get past being a child of God from knowing your sins are forgiven and knowing God to to another level of maturity. It's the word of God that abides in you. Just like a young man lifting weights, the word of God getting into your heart and getting into your soul is a spiritual equivalent of weightlifting. So let the word of God abide in you. So young men, read your Bible. Read books that explain the Bible. Listen to sermons that explain the Bible. Listen to teaching, conferences, on the Internet. You, there's so much more. I just say this. Study your Bible. Work hard at it. Memorize your Bible. And, and while you're young, do it. And I would just tell you, every minute that you spend in the Word of God, you will never regret when you're 80 years old. Or 79. Can I get an amen there, Don? Amen, right? You'll never regret any weight that you lift, any spiritual weight that you lift by by pursuing God's word. And so pursue it strong and, and pursue it hard. And, and in our day and age, there is no excuse for lack of resources. In fact, today, the problem is we got way too many resources that actually pull us away, maybe from the Bible. But be an expert in your Bible and, and know that it has a, a cumulative effect. I know that whatever come, I don't know when it is, the, the NFL draft, the combine sometime March or June, I, I forget where it is, but there's, there's one exercise, it's, it's the bench press. These guys get on the bench press and they bench this, I don't know, 200 pound, 220 pound bar as many times as they can. And, and whenever I've seen that or heard about it, I, I've always heard the commentators talk about how many times they do that shows how much they've been in the weight room. So in other words, you can't just be a Johnny come lately when it comes to just just pressing a barbell 20 sometimes or whatever they do. If, but, but if you're in there cumulatively, right, week after week, day after day, just pressing on and tear, pressing down, or whatever, breaking down your muscle and building it up, break it down, build it up, it has this cumulative effect that you, when you go for it, can, can go for it much better than just a flash in the pan. And, and I just say, like this, your, your Bible study and, and understanding of the Word of God abides in you has this accumulative effect as well. That, that you just gotta be in it and, and after a year's time, your time that you spent in it is gonna have an effect. And so, how was your week in the, in the Word of God this past week? Typical week. How was it? Is that, are you, are you tearing down your muscle? Are you lifting your weight so that next week you're just going to build on it and you're going to build on it the next week or build on it the next week? Or, or are you not even visiting the weight room? A picture of barbells on your, your Bible would be kind of good. It has a cumulative effect. And I would say also that, that the Word of God in you is the key to conquering sin and overcoming the devil. As God's Word shapes your worldview and not the world shaping your worldview. If the world shapes your worldview, you're going to love the world. You're going to pursue the things in the world. But you need God's Word to shape your worldview that tells you what the world really is. So, I would just say this, young men, convince yourself of verse 16. All that is in the world... The desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Convince yourself that the lusts of this world, the desires of this world, 
the, the pride of this world are not from the Father, but is from this world. And I say convince yourself because the world is going to tell you, oh, look at the great people. They're here. Pursue after your lust. Pursue after your passions. Pursue after your desires. And I'm going to say, no, no, you don't. You don't. You don't. We had a child at Kids Club. We're talking about things. And and she said, bless her heart. She said, yeah, you're just supposed to follow your heart. I'm like, no, you're not supposed to follow your heart. Supposed to follow God's word because God's word will often be different than your heart because your heart wants to go this way. And if you just let your heart go one way without the input of the word of God to to redirect what is right, then you're just going to go the way of the world. You're going to love the world. The love of the father is not going to be in you. It's only when the word of God is in you and it's it's convincing you that passing pleasures will just sever your relationship with God, that you're going to make a difference. And verse 17, convince yourself. We'll look at this more next week, right? The world is passing away. Along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Just just know that this world, it's all going to be dust someday. It's going to be nothing. So why pursue that which is temporal rather than that which is eternal? And the argument here is just pursue the eternal. But you got to work at that because we so live in the temporal. we got to continue to remind ourselves to pursue the eternal. Well, we'll get at that next week. But I just say never think that you've arrived Always be pursuing the Bible, pursuing it with a passion. But know this, that the Bible is not an end in itself. The Bible is a book that points to a greater reality. And and we see that when we get to the characteristic of, of fathers. Twice, he says, in verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Um, the reason here, the affirmation here, it's interesting, is the same as for the children. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Same word for know. This isn't know about. This is experiential. It's in a relationship um, that you would know that person. And so the Father, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. Technically, maybe that's Jesus because he's the one who comes from the beginning. We've seen that uh, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and even... Chapter 2, verse 7, talk about the beginning. Maybe it's, it's Jesus is a little bit of emphasis here from the Father. But the, the Trinity, you're still talking about knowing God. You're knowing Christ right from the beginning. Senses that the Father's been around for a long time. That, that you've been there. You've been steady Eddie for a long time. And you know the Father. You know you know God. And it is interesting how it, how it really comes back full circle. Um, because I, I think... After pursuing the word of God for years and through pursuing the word of God for years, you know God with a deeper passion than you ever did before. That he's tried and trusted, tested and true, that you have gone through the, the trials of life and you've gone through the young man's stage of learning and zeal and are now tempered a little bit. Because now you're mature, you got a, a settled fact. Not much shakes you anymore. I remember being zealous as a young man in the Word of God, learning a lot about the Word of God. My, I recently told my dad of a book that I was reading. And he says, ah, oh, I gave you that book about 20 years ago. And he said, it wasn't received very well back then. And I went, that's dead because I was young. But I, I read it with profit. I'm reading it with profit this time around. And just, see, there's a, there's a settledness that that older men have in the faith, that they, they've seen things go around and come around. They say, yeah, I've seen that before. I've seen that before. 
and there's a steadiness and a, a deep knowledge of God. And I, I just say this maturity trumps youthful zeal. So he's talking about coming here, coming back, but realizing that, that how do you get here? It's because the Bible is pointing you there to, to know about God. Um, Avon and I have recently been reading uh, this book, um, Created for Commitment, The Remarkable Story of the Founder of Bible Study Fellowship, A. Weatherall Johnson. And uh, we're reading this book mostly because um, my, my in-laws, uh, Avon's parents, have been greatly impacted by Bible Study Fellowship, impacted by her. I didn't even know that uh, this existed, and so I looked it up one time, and I actually sent it to her out in California and just anonymously and but she'd already had the book she'd already read it but so we we read it each night you know whatever five minutes ten minutes before we we go to bed and uh, there's just a a a, a rather lengthy portion here i want to read but i want you to just just capture a little bit that the idea is it's the word of god is a window pointing to god and and just her struggles just as she i think was growing from a a young woman to an older seasoned mother if you will um it said this. It says, so she was a missionary to China, and she said it was during that time that this Miss Britain became a, a spiritual mentor towards her. It says, I remember going into her room once feeling very despondent, like an unworthy Christian. I said, I need a fresh, fresh touch, like an unworthy Christian. I'm sorry, I need a fresh touch from God, perhaps an outstanding work of the Holy Spirit. So she was looking for this in her youthful zeal, like something great's going to happen. And this older woman's counsel to her was this says, what you need is to saturate yourself in the Bible. Why don't you leave your study, your, your Chinese study, because she was frantically trying to learn Chinese so she can minister to those people, and lie on an enclosed private porch and meet God through saturating yourself in one of the books of the Bible. This is a shock. I'd just come out of the Bible Institute under Mr. Hogman, no less, and I thought I knew the Bible. I thought, she has no idea how well I know the Bible. Surely there is no person so sure of herself in Bible knowledge as someone just out of seminary or Bible school, and especially one who has come onto the mission field. I had given many testimonies, led many meetings. I really considered I knew the Bible. I knew all the answers, so I thought. Isn't it too bad that she doesn't know how much I've read the Bible? I left disappointed, like Naaman, the captain of the king's guard, who went to Elisha for a cure for leprosy, and Elisha offered a simple remedy which disappointed the captain. Naaman expected no less than for Elisha to call in the name of God himself, but at least for some outstanding miracle to be worked instead of presumption that was a humble one, washed in the Jordan seven times. However, she says, in the mercy of God, I went upstairs and did what she advised. I went onto the balcony, opened my Bible, the book of Hebrews. I started reading the first chapter in the way I always had, analyzing and studying the text as I read. But something was wrong. I said to myself, I'm not receiving a thing. And they looked right up to God and said aloud, Father, you said that man does not live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, Lord, I'm a missionary and I'm supposed to tell others that they can live by the word of God. If I myself do not live there, I'm a phony. Now, please prove that I can do this, Lord. I am serious. I'm asking you, promise that you will reward a person who seeks the Lord, who seeks you. Lord, it's up to you. I'm going to begin reading. Lord, please make Hebrews come alive to me. I began to read Hebrews again, starting from the beginning. The next time I looked up, I'd finished the whole book and almost four hours had gone by. Looking back, I cannot explain any particular truth the Lord gave me or remember any particular verse that shone with me in special meeting. But what happened was this. 
through reading God's word in the power of the Holy Spirit, depending upon God to give life through it. It was as though God had picked me up and taken me into heaven where he dwells. I had been with him. My entire spiritual being was renewed, leaving the balcony. Feelings of lassitude disappeared. Depression was gone. I had received God's word and was rejuvenated in every part of my being. I write this because it has been one of the secrets of my life. And God used her in a great way. Again and again in China, it was impossible to avoid acute loneliness. Sometimes there were acute problems. I suffered from depression. Then I'd remember the solution to saturate myself in God's word. In other words, God himself. Now here, he's going to describe what's different about God's word and God himself. And that's really why we're coming here. There was another time much later in America in the early 50s. And I was reading the Bible one day in, in Samuel. And I was so thrilled. And I thought, oh, what an intellectual treat this is apart from the spiritual angle. It's such a delight to my mind. There are such rich verses and thoughts in this. It's so marvelous. Why do people, what do people do who don't have the Bible? And then I began to reproach myself and said, no, wait a minute. Don't get to worshiping a book like the Mohammedans worship their Koran. You worship the Lord, not a book. Let's get to worship. Let's not get to worshiping the Bible. And it was as though God said back to me, yes, but the Bible is different from everything else because the Bible is the revelation of me, how I deal with people, what my character is like, what my life is like. I reveal myself in the word and you can love the Bible as much as you like because through it you are loving me. And I found that I could love the Bible because I wasn't loving a book. I was loving the Lord who reveals himself in the book. She's talking about time and time again, just the word of God dwelling in her. And ultimately, right, I can love the book because the book tells me of the one who I need to know and love. And so in some regards, this comes back to the basics that a child starts with the knowledge of God. The word of God comes and the, the young men are pursuing that as, as a Weatherall Johnson was. But then it all comes back to knowing God in really a, a deeper and deeper way. And the greater truth and reality of it is, is that it comes back to the first statement as well. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Because that's really where it all comes back to. Coming back to understanding sins forgiven and the richness of that is. But when you go through understanding deeply the word of God, you will come back to that truth in a a precious, deeper way than ever before. John Newton on his deathbed said this. And with this, we're going to transition transition to the Lord's Supper. John Newton said, although my memory is fading, which is what happens when you get older, your memory will fade. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And here's John Newton, former slave trader, great pastor. He loved his people and only and, and he he did much good for the king. But when his memory faded, he came back to the basics. But his basics were far deeper than they were at the beginning. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And so I just ask you, who, who are you? Are you a child? Are you a young man? Are you a father? Have you gone through that transition? Do you know what I'm talking about? About going from sins forgiven and knowing God to pursuing God and then to coming back, understanding sins forgiven and knowing God in a deeper, deeper way. And that's that's always going to kind of cycle around. But but again, it's a deeper walk with God. It's what it means to be mature. So let me pray. Why don't you bow your heads? We think about the Lord's Supper. We're thinking here about what sins forgiven are all about. Sins forgiven took place at the cross of Christ when Christ Jesus, the perfect one, the spotless lamb, went to the cross, dying 
<clears throat> upon the cross, taking the punishment that we that we deserve. We deserve to die, but He died in our place. And because of His death in our place, sins are forgiven. As we simply look to the cross, we simply look to Jesus, not bringing righteousness in our hands, not bringing our goodness, but bringing nothing but faith alone. And so, as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper, we just challenge you even now to just to examine your heart, to see where you are in your spiritual walk, whether you are maturing. Because really the, the issue is whether you're maturing and growing. How, how, how steadfastly are you pursuing God's Word? Maybe today's a day you need to repent of that. Dust the dust off your Bible and, and, and pursue it and pursue it hard. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time but have barely begun. Today's a day of confession for that, that we might, might celebrate the, the cross of Christ. And this is for those who believe in Jesus. It's not for those who haven't come to faith. But if you've come to faith in Christ, celebrate the, the supper with us today. So, Father, I pray, God, may you commune with us. May you be with us. May the, the reality of our risen Savior, God, be ever present here in this room. As we think about Jesus dying upon the cross, we think about him giving his body for us as symbolized in the bread and pouring out blood for us as symbolized in the cup. Father, help us to reflect upon these things that we might mature beyond the basics back into the basics. To know you, O oh God, and to know sins forgiven and to rejoice in that. So be with us. Commune with us now, God, as we celebrate as you commanded us to. As we're to do this in remembrance of you. So let's...